0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to the show. Um, today is a busy day. I'm going to lead with Trump, one of Trump's spokespeople and his Secretary of Commerce. They may have given us the dumbest coronavirus predictions of all time. Um, I have some clips queued up. This is from January and February, and you're about to see just how off-base these losers are, and um, It's kind of amazing when you go back and take a look because, yet again, it shows they don't know what they're doing. Nobody knows what they're doing. They're just going out there and just talking. They're just talking. I'm an idiot YouTube host, and I had more knowledge on coronavirus earlier on than they did. And that's just pathetic. So I'm going to lead with that story. Then we're going to get into... um, Charlie Kirk and Michael Knowles spoke about the Corona bailout bill, and they admitted something that they probably are regretting at the moment. Then we got Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro was taking shots at um, at absolutely everybody, even uh, the Republicans because, you know, he's trying to stick to his free market is always right position. So we'll get to that. And uh, later on in the show, the premiums are going to be jacked up as a result of coronavirus. Um, and I'll tell you what's going on with Boeing after the bailout. What happened with Boeing is a cautionary tale. And, of course, it, um, there will be no adjusting going forward anyway. It's incredible what happened with them, but nobody's going to like take note of that and then avoid this kind of stuff in the future. If anything, they'll continue to do these kinds of bailouts because they don't care about the negative consequences because they aren't really negative to these people because they're pirates. Um, So we got all that and much more. So let's go ahead and get started. Oh, yeah, Joe Rogan, too. I forgot to mention that. The Joe Rogan thing I'll discuss later on in the show. He was trending on Twitter over the weekend. Um, So we'll talk about that. Anyway, without further ado, let's get started, and we're going to go right to Trump's spokespeople and how ridiculous they are. Let me set this up for you. One of Trump's spokespeople and uh, his Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, really gave us two of the most insane coronavirus predictions ever. I mean, this stuff is special. It is special stupid. So let's take a look at what both of them said. This is back in January and February, but it's not just them. It was also Trump himself. We played the anti-Trump ad for you recently, which had a compilation of everything he was saying in January and February and early March about the coronavirus. And he, utterly clueless, didn't realize what was about to hit him, even really on the day or the day or the week where... Everything should have been locked down in the U.S. to make sure we, you know, stop the spread of this thing. Even then, at that late date in early March, he was still, you know, going on and um, acting like it's not that serious. It's just like the flu. This is no big deal. So anyway, forget Trump's comments. Put them aside because these take the cake.
0: Looking at the coronavirus and the president saying, you know, look, we're not going to take people in from China right now. I mean, isn't it just a matter of protecting us, our national security really being at stake? And he's sort of the last line of defense there. Well, first line, I should say. Absolutely. This president will always put America first. He will always protect American citizens. We will not see diseases like the coronavirus come here. We will not see terrorism come here. And isn't that refreshing when contrasting it with the awful presidency of President Obama?
2: Katie McEnany, thank you so much. Good to see you. Thank
0: you. You can seriously see the Chinese economy come to a halt. And given the the large uh, percentage of global growth that China commands, does that actually threaten what you're just saying?
2: Well, first of all, every American's heart has to go out to the victims of the coronavirus, so I don't want to talk about a victory lap over a very unfortunate, very malignant disease. But the fact is, it does give businesses yet another thing to consider when they go through their review of their supply chain. And top of all the other things, because you had SARS, you have the African swine virus there. Now you have this. It's another risk factor that people need to take into account. So I think it will help to accelerate the return of jobs to North America, some to U.S., probably some to Mexico as well.
0: Oh, that's a good point, actually.
1: Maria Bartiromo at the Oh, that's a good point. It was the exact opposite of a good point, that would be a bad point. <laughs> oh, they're amazing. Now Maria Bargaromo, um, like almost all of the hosts and commentators on these financial networks, I mean Fox Business and CNBC, um, they've proven time and time again that they're wrong about everything, and yet for some reason they're still taken seriously and they're still on the air. But I remember back to when we had the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, the market crashed. And I remember very clearly watching the compilations at the time of every single host and every single commentator on that network except one saying, oh, this isn't going to be a market crash, sour grapes. That's what they would say if you said, you know, I think the market's going to go down. They'd say sour grapes. They have these little, you know, buzzwords that they use in, in economic lingo, that uh, that's supposed to, I guess that's supposed to encapsulate an entire argument. (laughs) Like, yeah, sure, you think the market's going to go down, and you provided a reason for that, but I say sour grapes. They love saying bull market and bear market, too. It's, It's, you know, it's that economic world where they are incredibly insular and it's insufferable. But every single one of them except a libertarian economist named Peter Schiff was dead wrong. And they were, what they would do on CNBC is invite on the CEOs and the owners of the various corporations, and then they would ask them a question, and then they would just sit back and let them take the floor as if these people have no stake in the game, and as if they're just objective experts. They're not. They're not. You know, you're, you're doing the equivalent of um, inviting on Dick Cheney to talk about morality, as if he's the expert on morality. No, he's actually the exact opposite. He's deeply immoral. And you're talking to the guy who's responsible for leading us into a war that killed a minimum 200,000 innocent civilians. And, you know, it led to torture. And it's illegal under international law. The U.N. said you can't do it. This is the last guy I would go to. He shot a guy in the face. (laughs) Now You could say that was an accident. That's the official story. Okay, I guess. But, um... This is what you're doing. You're inviting on people who have a massive conflict of interest. And they're telling you, everything is fine. Keep giving us money and investing with us. There will be no market crash. And you could go back and look. Larry Kudlow is one of the people. Um, Jim Cramer, uh, Maria Bartiroma herself, many others. Every single prediction that they made uh, about the 2008 crash, in the month leading up to that crash, They said the exact opposite. So they don't know what they're doing. They're financial experts, and they're dead wrong on one of the most consequential financial events of our lifetimes. It's embarrassing. But you see the same thing happens here. The same thing is happening when it comes to this virus. Oh, I think that this will help American jobs. You think it'll help American jobs? How? Why? Based on what? Now, his argument was, well, you know, it'll make us rethink some of the supply chains and people will be more likely to set up jobs here at home. And, you know, in theory, I guess that makes some degree of sense, except he didn't factor in that we would get clobbered by the virus and first experience probably a depression, because that's what we're on our way to, a depression. So in Factor that in, which seems pretty important to me to factor in, and, but that leads to uh, the first comment you saw there. One of Trump's spokespeople said, we will not see diseases like corona come here. What, like, how can you say a thing with such confidence? What do you think, that the virus is actually going to respect borders, that it's going to stop? Right on the U.S. border and say, no, these kinds of people don't have viruses like the rest of the world. I say that, but that actually is something that many people believe. They think like, oh, other places in the world, let's be serious. They're deeply like unsanitary and they're not civilized. And here we're civilized. So, you know, these kinds of viruses, they happen elsewhere. They don't happen here. Um, Well, the Spanish flu begs to differ because uh, most experts believe that started here in the United States, particularly on a military base in Kansas. Doesn't happen in a civilized world. Well, mad cow started in England. But see, in their minds, well, the only ones that count, like swine flu, that's in Mexico, so it's not us, uh, that's Mexicans. I'm saying dirty, you know what I'm saying? And in China, they want to point to this and say, see them in their uncivilized ways. As if the wet markets are uncivilized, but factory farming that we do here is civilized. This is a lot of what goes on, you know, in their minds. We'll never see a virus like this here. So incredibly unprepared. Guys, the reason why these clips are so important, these are leaders of the most powerful government, not just in the world, but in human history. This guy is a leader in the most powerful government in human history, and this is the kind of stuff that he's saying, again, he's the secretary of commerce. They don't know anything. They don't know anything. They're not, he's not there based on merit. Trump's spokesperson isn't there based on merit. This is, nobody's driving the ship. Nobody's steering the ship. I know that you've heard me make this point many times before, but this should really open your eyes to it. When you have the president himself going out there and downplaying a pandemic that's killing people, And then you have other people in his administration saying stuff like this. I mean, that's really, uh, it's going to be good for jobs here. Look, I hope that after the worst of this stuff, that we do move supply chains here. But let me tell you something. I'm not optimistic. I'm not. And the reason why I'm not optimistic is our government is basically run By the corporations and the corporations bribe the politicians and all the corporations want to outsource the jobs because they make more profit that way and if there's one thing i know for sure it's that profit always takes precedent over human lives and i don't see anybody fixing this even though they should even though i wish we had supply chains and we had manufacturing here a lot more manufacturing here i wish that was the case If I was in charge, I'd do everything I could to make that the case. But I don't think it's going to happen. And so he's wrong on two fronts. He's wrong because I don't think they're going to do it. Even theoretically, if we didn't get hammered by the virus, I don't think they would do it. But now that we're getting hammered by the virus, I still don't think that they're going to do it. And we're going to lose a tremendous amount of jobs. Think about it. In, you know, this happened, I think his comment was in, um, was it February or January? I think his was February. Well, either way... Within a couple months, we would have the largest spike in unemployment in history. The previous record for one week filing in unemployment was uh, about 680,000 in one week during the peak of the Great Recession. Guys, we had 3.1 million one week and then 6.6 million the next week. But don't worry, I've been told by Trump spokesperson... That we don't get viruses like that here. Oh, man. So anyway, these people have no idea what they're talking about. Excuse me. And they're just propagandists. That's what they are. They go out there. They don't make the case that is. They make the case that they want to make to make themselves look good. Well, every now and then, you know, reality bursts that bubble in a clear way. And this is... is, um, These are two examples of that happening. Okay. Now we go to Charlie Kirk. Conservatives Charlie Kirk and Michael Knowles spoke about the corona bailout bill. And um what Charlie says here may surprise you and I think there's a, a small chance that he would like to have these words back.
3: I I and they're already talking about another stimulus. And look here's the long and short of it. It's that middle America, real small business relief. The best stimulus they could have, Michael, is the green light go back to work. I mean, that's what they want. Of course. And, and, and so I understand it's not that simple, and I understand there's, you know, all sorts of competing data and all that sort of stuff. I, However, I am of the opinion, like, hey, posting a $4 trillion deficit, yes. that should be something that should be deliberated so thoughtfully and critiqued so carefully, not jammed through and passed in what I consider with, the, with some of the most egregious waste that I've seen in a bill in the history of the U.S. And, and you know, what's so scary here for conservatives is, is the precedent, because, listen, I, you know, I'm, I'm fairly amenable to the bill. I can get behind a lot of aspects of it, but the, the sticking point you, for me... You're more amenable than me, but... Than I know, I'm, I'm probably more amenable to it than you are, but, but the sticking point for me is we are now setting the precedent of the government on a massive scale sending direct checks to people... Because of a time of crisis. Well, look, maybe this is a real, this is a serious crisis, at least an economic one. But what about the next one? Yeah. But Michael, I mean, Medicare for all costs 32 trillion dollars, but not 32 trillion dollars a year. That's That's right. That number that that Bernie said was over 10 years. So now we've set a precedent that 3 trillion a year for Medicare for all is not that much. Yep. In fact, it's perfectly affordable. But UBI, why why not do it every quarter? Why
1: not every month? Why not? <laughs> I agree, Charlie. I agree. Um, yeah, he's he's actually making our case there. He's making our case there. Um, if you give him credit for anything, it's that at least he's being consistent with his own ideology, whereas many so-called conservatives or so-called libertarians, they act like, government spending is wrong, growing the deficit and the debt is wrong, and then, you know, when it's inconvenient, they totally flip on that and they're like, "Yeah, I'm completely in favor of the debt and the deficit and uh increasing the government massively." Where at least Charlie here, so he's against welfare for regular people, but he's also against corporate welfare. So you can give him credit on that front. However, there is a lot of telling stuff in there, isn't there? I mean, there really is. So he says, well I mean listen you've already, you've set the precedent now that we could just do whatever that we could just pay for whatever that it's not really a question it's not really like oh we have to tax to make sure we get every dollar and every cent for a spending program you could just kind of do it and it reminds me of what uh, the clip that we played from uh, the head of the Federal Reserve and actually it was both heads of the Federal Reserve one during the the Great Recession Ben Bernanke and then the the newer one, I think his name is Jerome Powell, and they said in no uncertain terms, yeah, we could kind of do whatever we want. Um, and Ben Bernanke said, it, well, it's not. All we do is, like, move a decimal point on the screen at the Federal Reserve, and we just marked up the account, and then we're done. Now, I need you to understand something. This is under, you know, under Democrats and under Republicans. This is under uh, liberals and conservatives. This is the dominant philosophy, the dominant strain of thought in today's day and age. And it's like that for a good reason, because we've learned the lessons of history and what happens when you hit a giant economic crisis and you don't do that, and the government is not the spender of last resort. You exacerbate the economic crisis. Now, I would agree with Charlie that Where you are directing those resources to is massively important, and our government does not direct them to the right places. However, where I disagree with him is his underlying point is like, hey, maybe we shouldn't just you know spend trillions of dollars like that. I would say we absolutely can do that, and we should do that. We just need to spend it in the right ways. And what he alludes to at the end there, you know, I've always said you should be bailing out the people when there's an economic crisis. Don't bail out the businesses. If anything, what should have happened with the businesses, and this will really make Charlie's head explode, is temporary nationalization. Because what happens now is you give these private businesses trillions and trillions of dollars overall, billions per company respectively, or per industry, whatever you want to say. And then they're going to go bankrupt in a year or two because nobody's, like, if you're the cruise line industry, if you're the airline industry, great, you got bailed out. Well, guess what? Still nobody's flying. Still nobody's going on your terrible cruise ship. So you're going to come right back to the government hat in hand in a couple of years asking for another bailout. Now, I agree that that's, that's what's called moral hazard. That sets up a terrible incentive system where now they're always going to come back asking for more bailouts. But that's why, you know, again, I'm of the belief that if you temporarily nationalize the industry, the taxpayers, the owner of last resort, then when the economy gets going better and there's reason to believe that we're on the right path, then you could hand it back over to private hands. But as of right now, and many other countries are doing this, if you temporarily nationalize the uh, certain industries, that's the only way you could weather the storm. It's the only way, because again, you could bail people out, you could bail out certain industries and keep them afloat for a little bit, but in due time they're going to go belly up again because the economy is grinding to a halt. Um, but what he was saying there, in sort of a you know a tongue-in-cheek way, like why not do this and this and this, my reaction is actually correct. Those are probably the only things we should be doing. So, and the idea that Michael Knowles says there, oh, now you're setting a precedent of the government sending direct checks to people. We've had that precedent for a long time. It's called social security. So we set that precedent. Um, we already set the precedent that the, the deficit is not necessarily a problem. Every modern economist will tell you the deficit is not necessarily a problem. You can get some Austrians who say, you know, the opposite, but everybody who's a Keynesian, but beyond that, everybody, and the the acting ideology at the Federal Reserve is MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. And all of them will tell you the deficit is not necessarily the problem. The problem is inflation. So as long as we can control inflation, we can do as much deficit spending as we want, assuming we have control of our own currency. And thankfully here in the U.S., we do. We have our own currency. So... um, there's a lot of stuff there that's fascinating. Charlie says, well, the best stimulus is really to get people back to work. Yeah, but there's a pandemic, so they can't go back to work. That's the point. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, the proposals that you know, are the clear ones, in my opinion, you freeze all the major bills, put a total freeze on rent, mortgage, student loans, all the major ones, and then give everybody a UBI check every single month, and they could use that to pay for the bills that are not frozen. Um, So you basically press pause on the economy. And in terms of the bailout bill, he and I would agree on the corporate side of the bailout bill. I would not bail out the corporations, but I would effectively do a bailout of the people. And the logic is, hey, when there's a crisis, the government has to act because they have to look out for, as the Constitution says, the general welfare of the American people. So I would just flip that right on its head, just like Charlie alludes to there, and say, well, you know, if – There's a liquidity crisis, and if there's the financial industry immediately gets bailed out and gets a trillion dollars a day in quantitative easing when there's a problem, why don't we view the health crisis as a crisis? So why can't you use the same mechanisms instead of a trillion dollars a day to prop up uh, the financial institutions in Wall Street? Why not spend the money for Medicare for all? Because in my opinion, having 45,000 to 68,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic health care There's your crisis. You want to know another crisis? About 500,000 homeless people. That's a crisis. So the government should be the last line of defense. And even though he doesn't mean it when he says it at the end there, I think he's correct. He's like, well, now, see, you've set a precedent. And the precedent is the government could just spend whatever, whenever they want, for whatever reason. And this, this sets up a problem. Well, it's only a problem because our government is corrupt, so they're spending the money in all the wrong ways. If they weren't corrupt and they just spent the money on the actual crises, that'd be wonderful. That would be a a thriving social democracy. So um, almost, Charlie, almost. You were so close. So close. But he said it. He's like, well, if we could afford this ridiculous bailout bill, well, why can't we afford Medicare for all? Oh, I can't wait for the UBI. Correct, Charlie. Correct. That, that, but unironically. Next, 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 next. Ben Shapiro, Squeaky Benjamin. Squeaky Benjamin is at it again, so we covered um, some of his comments on our last show. He said that striking workers are just as bad as price gougers, and you had uh, some workers who were protesting for protective gear because they didn't want to get coronavirus as they worked. You have workers who wanted what's called hazard pay. They wanted double pay during the crisis, and these are specifically for the industries that are currently thriving. There are some industries, while the rest of the economy is imploding, there are some very few select industries who are expanding and the people who are striking happen to be in those industries that are expanding so anyway i think it's perfectly reasonable i think even if um ben shapiro were to say no don't be ridiculous it's hard to run a business and if you workers think you can handle this all on your own then fine by all means you run your own business yeah exactly that's totally fine that would be what's called a worker-owned co-op that would be democracy in the workplace and my guess is if you did have democracy in the workplace The workers would, by definition, be a lot happier because the decisions are made democratically. So if they had the money and they could afford it, which they can, the double pay, everybody would get their double pay. Everybody would get their protective gear. So, yeah, I don't – he's ridiculous in thinking that, like, man, the only reason these workers are protesting in these conditions is because they're so piggy and selfish and greedy. Really? That's who you think is piggy and selfish and greedy, not, for example, the people on the manager level – and, you know, the executive level at Amazon, who were forcing people to work in a factory where somebody had contracted the virus, they're not piggy. They're not the problem. It's the workers who want to make sure they don't catch the virus, and the workers who just want to be appreciated a little more during a time of crisis. I know, Ben, I know. It, it's, he's, he's a ridiculous person. Anyway, I digress from that. That was the last segment that we did. But Ben Shapiro's not done taking shots at people over the virus and the various solutions that are being implemented and proposed, take a look.
0: Hey, William Castro, a former failed presidential candidate, he says we have an affordable housing problem in the United States. Like seriously, that, that's where you're going with all of this is affordable housing? We're trying to fight a global pandemic right now. You might want to put your, your Marxist back burner ideas on the back on burner. One of the things that this coronavirus
3: has revealed is just how close so many million American families are to poverty, and one of the things that I think we need to focus on more is that we need to be bolder when it comes to housing assistance to make sure that people can stay in the apartment or the home that they're living in. So we need to be addressing this right now for the coronavirus period or crisis that we're in But also, it has demonstrated the long-term problem that we have when it comes to housing affordability out there.
0: Okay, come on. Come on. Like, your side projects don't matter. By the way, neither does President Trump's $2 trillion call for infrastructure spending. Sorry, we're too busy destroying the entire future of the American federal budget. Or we're going to do that over here. So if you want to add, like, another $2 trillion on top of this bill potholes, I'm going to go no on that.
1: Oh, man. He is so incredible in that he's seemingly wrong about everything. All right, so let me walk you through this. When he goes after Julian Castro, I can't believe I'm about to defend Julian Castro. But when he goes after Julian Castro, um, Castro is calling for affordable housing because, Ben, I don't know if you know this, homeless people can get the virus. Homeless people can spread the virus among each other putting their lives at risk. Those lives have value. I know you think they don't, but they have value. But beyond that, even if you're inclined to say they don't count because they're homeless and I'm Ben Shapiro, uh, they also can spread the virus among all Americans. Because when you have people who are perpetually out on the street during a national lockdown, that tends to have the opposite of the effect that we want. Namely, continued spreading of the virus. So the fact that he wasn't able to put two and two together, the fact that he wasn't able to understand that what Julian Castro was talking about is absolutely linked to the pandemic just shows that he's not that bright. Either that or he understands, but he doesn't care because they're homeless people, so in his mind, they don't count. They're super irrelevant and who cares what happens to them. But like I just explained to you, with homeless people having it, they also could spread it to people with homes. So even if he wants to have that terrible genocidal mindset about how homeless people are irrelevant and don't matter, he's still wrong. It's unbelievable. And then the point about infrastructure, oh, my God. Yet again, so now I just defended Julian Castro, and i got to defend Trump. The reason why Donald Trump would float something like an infrastructure deal right now, the reason why he would do that is because the numbers look like we're about to hit a Great Depression. When you have 3.1 million people file for unemployment one week, and then the next week, it's 6.6 million people. The old record was less than 700,000 in one week. And then in in a two-week span, we have 9 to 10 million people file for unemployment. We have no outs. The government has no outs. That's why they did the bailout bill. Now, the terms of the bill were terrible, and they needed to drastically and radically change from what they did because they just handed money over to corporations. But is an infrastructure bill a great idea? Yes, absolutely. One of the things that helped us get out of the Great Depression was the New Deal. Was the New Deal. That was an infrastructure project. That was a jobs program. That's exactly what Trump is talking about when he floats that. Now, I'm sure I'll disagree with the terms that they draft in a bill that has infrastructure spending in it. And I'm sure Trump will, you know, a lot of people in Trump's own party will say no to that. But look at the mindset, man. Look at the mind. He thinks it's just filling fill some potholes. Hey, you want at least trillions of dollars just filling some potholes? Of all the money that's been spent so far, that's what you're taking issue with? You're going to fill some potholes? Come on. you going to spend trillions just filling some potholes? Our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. As you guys know, because I reference it all the time, the Society of Civil Engineers releases a report every couple years, and our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. It's abysmal. It's abysmal. Our airports, our roads, our bridges, everything is crumbling. The last time it had a major update was during the Great Depression. So, yes, addressing that, fixing that, getting Americans... Back to work when the time is right with those kinds of projects. That's, that makes all the sense in the world. That's the most reasonable thing Trump has said throughout this entire pandemic. But, of course, the fiscal conservatives have to you know, rush in. I don't know. I seem to cost a lot of money. I'm not sure that that's a good idea because money. we shouldn't really be spending money like that. Really? Well, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of economists agree that in a time of crisis, that's exactly what you want to happen. It's exactly what you want to happen. The government needs to be the spender of last resort. If the government isn't, you exacerbate the crisis. But you would rather exacerbate the crisis because, man, we've got to watch out for the deficit and the debts. That's what we've got to do. <laughs> Except we have a sovereign currency. So a deficit or debt in and of itself is not a negative thing. It's only bad in so far as it leads to inflation. If we get to the point where we start getting inflation, serious inflation, well, then we agree and you take your foot off the gas pedal a little bit, and you don't do as much deficit spending. But we're not at that point yet, and we need to create jobs. We need to do something to stimulate the economy. It's a very mainstream, straightforward economic view that during a downturn like this, that's exactly when you do something like an infrastructure deal. It's exactly when you do it. You should have done it in 2008 in a much stronger way. So it's, God, he's so—he's wrong about everything. It's amazing how wrong he is about absolutely everything. So he would rather—I love how—and he also called affordable housing like a side pet issue. That doesn't—you know—you're a political dude, Ben. That's not something that's high on your list. Like, hmm, should everybody in our society probably have a roof over their head? No, I don't like the way that sounds. Is that too radical for you, Ben? <laughs> that everybody in a society have a roof over their head? See, look at the mindset. The mindset is not like, let's try to fix problems. Let's try to, you know, ameliorate social ills. The mindset is just like, you know, smug, callous indifference. I mean, it's really stunning the degree to which it is that. Because you're talking about a guy like Trump who's smug and callous and indifferent. And he's significantly less smug and callous and indifferent than this guy. At least he's floating the idea of let's do an infrastructure bill. Again, I'm sure that if they draft a bill like that, the terms will be horrendous. But look at Ben Shapiro's response. Dude, you're embarrassing. Okay, next. Mark Levin is going to get it now. Mark Levin,
0: Mark Levin.
1: So Fox host Mark Levin um, and a bunch of conservatives are turning on Trump over the economic response to COVID-19, but they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. So in other words, it's not like they're not targeting the corporate bailout portion of the bill that I talk about, which is terrible. It's just to give away to corporations, and they're going to go bankrupt soon enough anyway because. You bail out the cruise line industry and the airline industry, nobody goes on nobody, you know, uses them over the next year and a half, two years, and then they're gonna need another bailout. So but he's not point is he's not criticizing in a reasonable way. You'll see the nature of his criticism here and it's pathetic.
0: Now, this next round of spending is a disaster. Uh, you can't push this kind of money into an economy and then say that we're going to put people to work when you're telling people not to work. That is the federal budget, $4.7 trillion. That is what they just spent last week, $2.2 trillion. That is what the Fed can loan, $4.5 trillion, and basically they've nationalized the private capital market. No, they haven't. Now, they want to spend another $2 trillion. Believe me, with the Democrats, it's going to get worse than that. What's a trillion dollars? A trillion dollars, does anybody know right now that's $13.4 trillion. I have to put it in writing, it's so big, that's 11 zeros. Okay, 13.4 trillion dollars. What is a trillion dollars? One trillion dollars is a million millions. One trillion dollars is a thousand billions. Washington, stop! you're going to destroy the economy, what's left of it. You're going to create massive inflation. If you're right, if you're right and I'm wrong, then we'll have Venezuela.
1: Oh, my God. He's so stupid. Okay. So the Venezuela point. Um, first of all, we don't have sanctions that are absolutely positively crushing our economy. We have just unbelievably um, restrictive Sanctions on Venezuela, so that hurts them upfront. But beyond that, they put all their eggs in the oil basket. Okay, they don't have an economy that's diversified in any way, shape, or form. All their eggs were in the oil basket, and so when uh, the price of oil, the price of oil fluctuates, and when it does, I mean, forget it. You, you totally obliterate that economy. So to make the comparison us to Venezuela is beyond absurd. It's just beyond absurd. So. That's your argument. By, having, by doing stimulus spending, we're going to become Venezuela. Okay, every single government, when you have an economic downturn, they do stimulus spending. Why? Because if the government does not do stimulus spending, you exacerbate the financial crisis. Again, don't, guys, don't take my word for it. You can read about it on your own. Every single mainstream economist will tell you this. There are some non-mainstream economists who will tell you the opposite, but they have to ignore history. They have to ignore history. When the government takes a hands-off approach and, you know, you have the market imploding and you have a looming financial crisis, that's only going to exacerbate the problem. The government is the last line of defense, the spender of last resort, and um, they have the ability to basically prop up the economy. So now, having said that, Yes, there are ways in which you should do that and ways in which you shouldn't do that. You guys know I'm against the quantitative easing for the financial institutions. I'm against the bailouts for the big corporations, or at the very least, the bailouts with fewer, no strings attached. So, yes, there's plenty to criticize in the way that we're handling this. But that's not Mark Levin's criticism. Mark Levin's criticism is, man, I have a sheet that has big numbers on it. Here, watch. Look, I got large numbers. See? Look. See, that's a big number. I don't know how well you guys can see that. See, there's a lot of zeros there. I'm Mark Levin, which, and I somehow have the same voice as Ted Cruz. Me. <laughs> he really is the most annoying in terms of the sound of his voice, too, though, uh, among the conservative commentators. Ted is the worst among the politicians. But, like, his whole argument, and I've, I remember from when I started in, uh, you know, following politics, conservatives have always used this argument. Back you know, back in the day when the national debt was like sixteen trillion, they'd be like, And did you know the national debt is sixteen trillion? And then like do you do you have a point? Because they don't they never put it in context, they never explain what that means. And like Mark Levin either doesn't know or doesn't care that we control our own currency. And when you have a sovereign currency, you kinda can do whatever you want. The only thing that would prevent you from, you know, continuing to pump liquidity into the marketplace is um, inflation. And we're not experiencing a lot of inflation right now. So the move from the Federal Reserve is we're going to do everything that we can until we, you know, come up against that barrier, in which case then we back off a little bit. But his argument is just, oh, my God, we're spending a lot of money. Oh, my God, a trillion dollars is a lot. Um, oh, my God, we're turning into Venezuela even though we're not, so please stop it. And I love when he said we've basically uh, – what did he say? We nation- what market did he say we nationalized? doesn't matter because whatever he thinks we nationalized, we didn't. If we did, we'd be a hell of a lot better because, as you guys know, I've floated my idea before that all the industries that are asking for a bailout, it's much better to temporarily nationalize them than to give them a bailout and then have them go bankrupt again. Through these tumultuous times, just have the government own it, continue, you know, with payroll in various industries, and then when times get back to normal, then you hand those industries back over. That really is the best way to weather the storm. But you have a bunch of idiots like Mark Levin who, they'll scream Venezuela even when we're not acting like Venezuela. So imagine if we actually started to nationalize certain industries. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Mark Levin would be out there with his, you know, His doughboy gut holding a firearm. (laughs) This guy thinks he's leading the revolution. He'd be out of breath in three and a half minutes trying to, you know, storm Washington, trying to storm uh, Capitol Hill. So this is not – he thinks he's making an argument, but what he's really doing is saying, well, look at these large numbers. Large numbers are bad. Venezuela. Mm." okay, Mark, that's not, you're not making a point. Yes, the numbers are large, but also they should be because our economy is imploding and the government is our last line of defense. You can criticize the specific way in which that money is being spent, but you're not doing that. You're not doing that. You're not saying, okay, let's do this, let's not do this. Let's be specific here, and what makes sense and what doesn't. No, to him, it's ah, any bill is
0: banned. Stop it, me.
1: And this is the kind of pressure now that's being put on Trump from these conservative know-nothings whether it's Ben Shapiro, whether it's Mark Levin, and Trump watches Fox News all the time. And the advice that he's getting from the Fox News people is just stop doing anything. And by the way, he goes on to kind of imply, like, we got to get back to work. Okay, but how can you make that point when there's a pandemic ripping through the country still? Getting back to work means thousands and thousands more people will die. So, you know, the whole idea of being on lockdown is for public health. If you say we shouldn't do that, then what you're saying is public health really doesn't matter, and I don't care about it. So this is, this is, this is the conservative contribution to the conversation. You know, on the left, I've seen very long, detailed conversations and debate around the nature of a, of a bailout or a stimulus bill. I've seen that stuff. Um, I've seen people saying we need to to change the terms. I never see anybody saying the entire conversation of a rescue package or a stimulus bill shouldn't have it. No stimulus, no bailout to anybody, the people or the industries, and let's just see what happens. The degree to which... We would turn the country into oblivion if we did that. would be unreal. It would be, it, we would surpass the Great Depression. If we had done nothing every step of the way, you surpassed the Great Depression, for sure. Certain industries, yes, you let them fail or you nationalize them. But, you know, to do nothing, nothing at all, so we didn't expand unemployment, for example. Say we didn't do that. Let's say we didn't cut those $1,200 checks. Let's say we didn't do that. I mean, it would be, oh, God, you shudder to think of just how much worse it would be. It's already bad. It would be so much worse. So um, don't listen to these guys. They have no clue what they're talking about. All right, next. This news broke this week and it's not being discussed nearly enough. This is kind of absent on mainstream media, but thankfully there are some alternative media outlets that are covering it and um, you know, some print outlets are doing a good job here, but healthcare insurers expected to raise premiums by as much as 40% to recoup coronavirus losses, insurance companies may respond to cost increases as high as 21% by hitting individuals with 40% premium hikes. So, um, I could already hear the market fundamentalists like, "Well, actually, you don't understand exactly why we have to do this because when you look at the numbers and uh, you do the math on it, obviously, you know, this is something that's necessary because to see that where this line and this line meets on the graph." <laughs> God, the market fundamentalists are the worst. <laughs> it's so annoying like hearing them go off about stuff like this. But I got, uh, I got news for all of them. There's a former VP of Cigna. I think his name is Wendell Potter. Um, and basically this guy saw the light. And he realized, like, oh, my God, I'm part of one of the most immoral industries of all time. And he realized, wow, the role of the company I work for is to deny as much care to people who need it as possible so that we could pad the bottom line and make more profits, which we have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders to do. So you have this guy with this enlightenment moment, VP of Cigna, had an enlightenment moment, oh my God, and he felt terrible. He's like, I can't, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So he's no longer in the industry, but what he does is he exposes them ruthlessly. And so he came out and he said, no, 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 this is, what they're doing here is robbing people. What these premium hikes would do is they'd be robbing people. So he explains that they're going to skim on COVID uh, treatment as much as possible. And then on top of skimming on the treatment, they're going to jack up the premiums and even though they tell you, oh, we're financially hurting so much, it's actually not true. Um, so their stock prices, since the beginning of the crisis, their stock prices for their respective health insurance companies, they're up 5% to 15%. So they're not taking a big hit. It's going in the other direction. Now the CEOs for these companies make anywhere from $10 million to about $25 million per year. The big insurance companies raked in about $10 billion in profit, in profit, one quarter, one single quarter in 2019. $10 billion in profit in a single quarter in 2019. So the point from Wendell Potter is like, they're going to make it, they're going to tell you like, bro, we have no choice but to jack up premiums 40%. That's total nonsense. They're robbing you is what they're doing. And listen, honestly, you shouldn't be surprised by this. Why? Because I, I've explained it a thousand times. They're a mafia. They're... A, what's the point of health insurance companies? What's the point? So you have an unnecessary middleman between you and your doctor. You pay this middleman every month in case something happens to you. And then if something happens to you, you go to the middleman and say, "Could you help me out? And the middleman's like, well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll help you out, but, for, I mean, you've got to cover the first, like, $3,000. I've been paying you every single month for years, and now I finally need you, and you say, yeah, I got you, but first. What do you mean, but first? But first? What are you talking about, but first? I've been paying you every single month for years. You pay. is your whole point. Well, see, what happened was the sun was in my eyes, and we got to make sure that the mathematics and the numbers on the screen it doesn't add up properly, so if you show up and pay $3,000 first premiums, co-pays, deductibles, all that stuff. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of Wendell Potter, the former VP of Cigna. It's all a ruse. It's all a scam. They are an unnecessary, for-profit, rapacious, mafia middleman that gets in between you and your doctors and price gouges you and robs you. Now, just so you understand, all the other countries, they don't face this. Every other developed country on Earth has one version or another of a single-payer system. There's no fear. There's no concern over there about, oh my God, we have a health crisis. Sorry, but you're going to have to pay so much more in taxes next year for your health insurance. That doesn't happen. We just got done. How long ago was it? A week ago? Two weeks ago? Talking on this show about how they decided... Oh, we're gonna we're gonna dump a trillion dollars into the financial markets to shore them up every single day, every single day, every day, every day during the crisis. $1 trillion dollars, trillion dollars, trillion dollars, trillion dollars. They did the you know 4.5 trillion dollar bailout bill. They're just they throw around money like it's no. We we have to do it. It's a crisis. It's a matter of necessity. Don't worry about how we pay for it. So why is the same approach not taken for healthcare? Sorry, but we're going to give you treatment that's not even the best treatment. And then on top of that, we got to jack up your premium 40%. So the financial markets get an unlimited amount of cash. But individuals got the virus, are getting not the best treatment, and premiums are getting jacked up. Everybody's premium is getting jacked up, not just the people. Who get the virus. Everybody's premiums getting jacked up. If this doesn't wake Americans up to this scam, nothing will. And actually, that's not fair because the polls already show people want Medicare for all. They already show it. But we're not getting it, and we're also not electing the politicians who would deliver on it. But this needs to wake people up, man. This needs to wake people up. And honestly, shame on our lefty leaders for not using this to get certain things implemented. I think a, a, a UBI could have been implemented during this crisis. I do. I think the corporations would have handed over a UBI, 1000 bucks a month indefinitely. I think they would have done that to get their precious, precious bailout money. But instead, we got a one-time $1,200 payment because I don't think our lefty leaders were strong enough in negotiating. And I don't, Bernie Sanders should have said, I'll hold up the bill until you give more. I'll hold up the bill until you give more. But see, this is what happens when you have the mafia middleman running our health insurance and our health care system. This is what happens. So, oops, sorry, 40% increase. We totally have to do it. Don't trust the former VP of Cygnus who says we don't have to do it. He's not not right. He's not right. He's not right. Well, as a matter of principle, why should there be profit made in such an endeavor as health insurance? I've never heard a coherent argument that makes sense on that front. Listen, I'm not, I'm not a hardcore socialist or communist where I say the profit motive in all industries must be gone. I don't agree with that. But I certainly believe that in certain industries, the profit motive shouldn't be there. And one of those things is health insurance and health care. Why should there be profit in that industry? All the evidence shows that that's a, a, a wasteful, costly, inefficient system that delivers worse results. So why why would we have that? Why is everybody okay with that? But that's our system. And this is what happens when you have that system, a 40% increase in premiums. Uh, during a crisis, when people need the help and need the care the most, they're going to skim on the care, the treatment, and they're going to jack up the premiums. It's almost like this story alone is an argument against the terrible system that we have. And it's almost like that because it is. Time to take a break. Time to take a break. When we come back. I got more stuff. All right, little little too quick on the trigger finger there, Kalinsky. But anyway, when we come back, we do have a lot more stuff, including religious lunatics and how they're responding to Corona. Stay right there. back everybody welcome back Cotter all right so I'm gonna catch you up on what's happening with um, with Boeing in just a second they've been one of the worst defenders as far as uh, the bailout goes and as far as corruption goes um, then we'll get to uh, some of the religious stuff in response to the coronavirus. Suffice to say, there's not um, there's some fundamentalists who are not taking this issue as seriously as they should. So we'll dive into that. But first, Boeing. <clears throat> Let's check in on how that big, beefy Corona bailout is going. Boeing is cutting jobs after giving the CEO it fired over the Mac scandal, 80.7 million on the way out, enough to pay 939 workers' salaries, getting up to $17 billion in COVID aid, spent 74% of free cash flow on buybacks last decade, got $8.7 billion subsidy from Washington State. So they're, they just got billions of dollars in aid and they're cutting jobs. Some of the people are, will be lucky enough to get buyouts, so they'll like pay them to retire. It's a fancy way of saying firing with a few benefits, but they're cutting jobs. See, this is exactly why I was arguing that you should temporarily nationalize all these companies that desperately want a bailout. Do you guys remember the Boeing CEO went on, I think it was CNBC or Fox Business, and said um, that if the government wants equity shares in Boeing, that, oh, we'll look at other options. So they're going to the government to ask for a bailout, and then they have the nerve to say that if the government, like let's say the government gives the equivalent of 40% of the value of Boeing to Boeing, they, were, they might have said, oh, well, we want a 40% stake in the company, so we want to own 40% of the company because that's how much money we gave you. The Boeing CEO was like, well, if they insist on, on that, then we'll, we'll look for other options. We have other options. What? Then why are you asking for a bailout if you have other options? What are you talking about? So they just wanted the money and the government to piss off. Just give us free money and shut up. Isn't that unbelievable? And so here you go. This is exactly why I said, if the government you know, gives these companies or these various industries any money, just temporarily nationalize the industries, Because that's the only way you can guarantee we're going to keep payroll going for, for the workers. And we don't really have to worry about making a profit during this pandemic. Because it's a pandemic and the economy is grinding to a halt and we have no problem, you know, spending whatever we have to spend to keep these industries afloat, but not a penny more and not on anything like ridiculous. So that's the only way you could have guaranteed that is temporary nationalization. But they didn't temporarily nationalize. The government is bailing out. They're doing it with few strings attached. And this is what you get as a result of it. You get the exact thing that we warned you was going to happen. It's happening. The exact thing. Sorry, I know we took billions of dollars, but we're going to fire people anyway. Spend the resources in a ridiculous way. This is what we knew this was going to happen, and it's happening. So guess what? It's no surprise now that this came out at the same time. As coronavirus spreads, poll shows nearly 60% in the U.S. believe political system designed solely to serve rich and powerful The survey was taken as Congress debated the $4.5 trillion corporate bailout amid the coronavirus pandemic. So that was a uh, Hill-Harris X poll very respected pollster. And again, 60% in the U.S. believe the political system is designed solely to serve the rich and the powerful. Those people are not wrong. Every single group you could think of except... Republicans said, "Oh yeah, if this is this whole system is designed to serve the rich and the powerful." Again, I, there's an important word in there: solely serve the rich and the powerful. Everything else is ancillary. Every single other thing is ancillary. So, um, and even with Republicans saying the opposite right now, I guarantee you, do another poll a month after Trump is out of office. Hey, is this government? Um, existing solely to serve the rich and the powerful? And a majority of the Republicans will say, yes, it's solely to serve the rich and the powerful. I guarantee you. By the same token, you have, you know, polls on getting money out of politics. The number is unbelievable. It's like 70, 80 percent of the public wants to get, you know, private money out of politics for obvious reasons, because it leads to corruption, the definition of corruption. So this is where we're at. And this is yet again why you have, Uh, Congress having a 22% approval rating, 22%. Those are the people that we pick, but they have a 22% approval rating. Why? Because of this. Because people know, oh, right, this is designed solely to serve the rich and the powerful. So what would a government like that do? Give billions of dollars to a company like Boeing and sit around as they still lay people off? We just gave you billions. Like the whole point of giving the billions is so that you don't lay people off, and then you lay people off anyway. This is what I'm talking about, man. Read Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, because this is what they do. You have the exploitation of a tragedy to implement the pre-existing agenda. They used it to do that. You could argue the Iraq War was the same thing, that Washington wanted to take out Saddam Hussein for years, and they used 9-11 as an excuse to do that, even though Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11. But they tried to make the case, and then they went in there. Shock Doctrine one on one. That's exactly what this is as well. Okay. Here we go, baby. So the majority of states are locked down, and, you know, the non-essential businesses are shut and they're doing that because we have, oh, I have the wrong graphic over my shoulder, and I'm going to start that over. I love being a mess. Isn't being a mess fun? All right, here we go. There are at least a dozen states that are exempting religious gatherings from their lockdown orders. So the majority of states have shut down, you know, non-essential businesses. Um, Some haven't, but even in many of the states that have shut down the non-essential businesses, they say, well, religious gatherings are essential. And so people can gather in small places with large numbers of people and poor ventilation as long as you say it's a religious thing. So make no mistake about it. This will absolutely help spread the virus. And I want to show you what some of these people are saying.
3: Now, this Oops. next round of spending... Wrong one. Driving out of this Ohio parking lot is a woman who just attended a church service with dozens of other people, including children. Can I ask you about your decision to go to church to be inside that building? I wouldn't be anywhere else
2: you you could infect other people if
0: you get sick inside. No. People that don't go to this no. church. No. I'm covered in Jesus' blood. I'm covered in Jesus' well, blood. Other people who don't go to this church who you might encounter? All of these people go to this church. You no, know, but you're going to be in places where other I go to the grocery store every day. I'm in Walmart. Home Depot. all those
1: you people. could get them sick from what happened. They could get me sick, but they're not because I'm covered in the blood. Thank you very much. What? What? <laughs> it's one thing i've said this many times before but it's one thing to be wrong it's one thing to be wrong about something it's another thing to be arrogantly wrong about something so not only are you wrong you seem insistent that you're right now listen at one point or another we've all played the fool in our lives and i'm sure i've done that at some point i'm sure you've done that at some point but to do it on a topic so preposterous don't worry, it's okay. I'm covered in Jesus' blood. Okay, first of all, that alone would probably lead to disease. <laughs> you don't want to be covered in anybody's blood. Never mind Jesus' blood. I'm cover- She was like, I'm covered in his blood, it's okay. She was so sure of herself. I'm covered in, I'm covered in his blood, it's fine. I- I'm covered in his blood. I'm covered in his blood, it's cool, it's cool. I mean, I know religious people. I have religious people in my life. Um, and even though they're religious, you would never hear them say such a ridiculous thing. Never! As soon as the pandemic hit, they were like, oh, 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 I'm not going to church, are you kidding me? (laughs) Why would I do that? Why would I do that? Make it likely that I get the virus. You really think Jesus is going to protect you from the virus? That's actually a thing that you think. If that was true, there would be no Christians that have the virus. No Christians would have the virus if that was true. But a lot of them do. There are plenty of Christians that have the virus. So what do you think? I mean, I guess if you talk to this woman, she would say, well, I mean, look, their faith just wasn't strong enough. Oh, come on. Come on. I don't know. Maybe she would say that or maybe she would say, no, I don't think any Christians have had the virus. There was the famous case, one of the early cases in um, in South Korea. They were, like, quarantining well and there was one person that had the virus that went to religious services and spread it to so many more people and that led to the numbers going up um, pretty rapidly at one point now that since they've since got it under control everybody's wearing a mask they do chain testing but the the original outbreak really spread because of one religious person who went to services i mean you couldn't like you couldn't create something designed to spread the virus more than a religious gathering. You couldn't, because everybody's like on top of each other, super close to each other, a bunch of people in a small area, and you could easily, easily, just from coughing a few times, infect six, seven people around you, and then think about each one of those seven people will infect three other people per day, assuming that they're, you know, acting relatively Normally, and they are going to supermarket. They are going to whatever the essential businesses are. So, I mean, there are plenty of people who are true fundamentalists, like this lady here. So, this is why you need the government to act more rationally. This is why you need the government to say, well, no, we're going to shut down all non-essential businesses, all. Now, maybe you can make some exceptions for things that are uniquely suited for people not to get sick, anything where, you know, if somebody wants to go to the park and play volleyball or something, you're far enough away from each other where you're not going to get the virus that way. So you could be reasonable about it. You could be nuanced about it and craft, you know, loopholes or whatever where you say, well, this is no risk here. She could do that. That's fine. But by and large, all the non-essential gatherings, definitely something like religious services have to be shut down. The government has to be reasonable. And you're having, um, you know, I believe it was Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, making these tortured cases about how, you know, but the Constitution makes it so that we can't do that? Oh, come on. Really? Really? So your idea of separation of church and state (laughs) includes that if there's a national crisis and emergency and pandemic, um, therefore, nothing the government says applies to religious institutions, but that's so silly. Like, okay, yes, we have separation of church and state, but if somebody commits murder in a church, we don't say, well, he gets away with it because it's technically part of the religious institution. We don't do that because that's stupid. That's stupid. That makes no sense. It's not like all laws are out the window when it comes to a church. No, that's not what that means. <laughs> but, they're, again, they're just bending over backwards. You want to know why? Because a lot of these governors... A lot of the governors who are doing it are probably really religious themselves. But beyond that, a lot of them are Republicans, and a lot of their voting constituency who supported them in high numbers involve religious people, and they don't want to upset them. But you know what will upset them a hell of a lot more? When they start dropping dead. When they start dropping dead, because that will happen. That will happen. You absolutely should shut down. Trump should have done it a while ago. Trump has been not good in dealing with this thing at the federal level in other words he's really letting the states kind of decide on their own uh, the governors decide on their own but that i think that's leading to more of a spread because there are going to be plenty of states that don't shut everything down and then it's going to eventually it'll spread there um but this is one of those instances where at the federal level they should have taken action for sure trump should have said at the federal level He originally said, come Easter, I want, you know, let's reopen the country by Easter. Thankfully, he backed off of that. We probably have to thank, you know, Dr. Fauci and whatever other scientifically minded people are talking to him. Um, But this is wild. See, you wonder why we need like a national quarantine and we need a national lockdown. It's because many people in the country are going to sound exactly like that. I don't know the exact number. Don't quote me on it. But Anywhere from 20 to 30% of the country are hardcore religious fundamentalists. And right alongside religious fundamentalism comes a denial of science. And it manifests in many ways. Like these are the same people who don't believe in evolution, these are the same people who don't believe in uh, climate change. They think that's a hoax. And clearly, these are the same people who are now, to some extent, pandemic deniers. And I I don't just want to pick on the religious people, because there are plenty of people who have this casual assumption of like, yeah, but it won't impact me. (laughs) Like, there are plenty of people who think that way. Like, oh, I see the devastation and the destruction, but I'm me, so I'll be all right. I'm telling you a lot of people think that way. But this is like, you know, a step further, and you're going to get a higher number of people that are fundamentalist evangelicals who are going to think like this. It's all right, I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Oh, you were concerned. You were concerned that I might get it or I might spread it. Don't be ridiculous. (laughs) I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. Think about how ridiculous that sounds to somebody not in the context of the U.S. I mean, it sounds ridiculous in the U.S., but if an alien comes down and they hear the whole situation of the pandemic and they see this woman, oh, so humans are idiots. That's what this is, right? <laughs> That's what they would think. And, and the, the old school test is to remove the religion that you're most familiar with and put in one that you're not familiar with. And then you'd see, you'd see how silly it looks. You know, if, if a voodoo witch doctor was like, it's okay, I'm not going to get sick. I'm a voodoo witch doctor. You'd be like, what? That's ridiculous. doesn't matter. Fill in the blank with whatever religion. If, um, you know, if some Hindu person was like, it's all right. It's all right. I will be protected. Um, Or Muslim person was like, Allah will protect me. You'd be like, what? What are you talking about? She not only says God will protect me, but I'm covered in Jesus' blood. What? (laughs) You, You could... What's the equivalent of that for other religions? I don't know. i I, I Zeus pissed on me, so I'll be safe. <laughs> oh come on, man. I, you know, this is one of those things I used to know. I'm gonna look this up as I talk here to you guys, but I used to know how many religions are there. I used to know that number, and I could use it. it Okay, here you go. Here it is. Yes, this is it. 4,200 religions exist in the world. 4,200 religions. So, think about it. This woman who just said, I'll be okay. I'll be okay because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus, so I'm fine. That woman is an atheist when it comes to 4,199 religions. But she doesn't go that one last step of the one she was raised in. The one that she believes in wholeheartedly. And and that really exposes the absurdity of it. 4,200 religions. What are the chances you pick the right one? Carol. I have no idea if her name is Carol, but she looks like a Carol. What are the chances you pick the right one? Very, very, very small. So, I don't know, maybe don't roll the dice on the blood of Jesus? (laughs) God, what are we going to do with people, man? It is tough. I mean... Generally speaking, I'm of the belief that Americans are kind of historically ignorant. They don't know a lot about history. um, But I've always made the case that Americans aren't stupid. There's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. You can fix ignorance. You can't really fix stupidity. Um, And I do believe Americans are ignorant, but when you, like, poll the American people, on what they think of the various political issues. They oftentimes are very reasonable. So I don't think Americans are stupid. Um, But when you watch a video like this, you know, there are some asterisks, man. There are some caveats. I am hedging a little bit. I think there are plenty of people for different reasons, but to the extent that you've convinced yourself that the supernatural is not only real and exists, but is obvious, and you know the details of the supernatural... Mm, it's hard for me to be kind to you and give you the benefit of the doubt, I think you might be lacking in a certain department. I don't want to say it, but I think you all know what it is. So um, don't be like this, guys. Don't be like this. And if if you have anybody in your life who you love and you care about who thinks like this, change their mind. Do everything you can to change their mind. Because that mindset will absolutely spread the virus more and will get people killed. So it's not just bad for her. Bad for everybody. And, um, you know, I don't know how somebody can live with themselves if they get to the point where their actions lead to the deaths of other people. So just nip it in the bud and make sure everybody stays in as much as possible and you avoid situations where um, this stuff can easily spread. Now, let me give you some more on the mismanagement of this crisis. Forbes spent, ooh, wrong. Forbes released an amazing story. Um, a reporter for them spent a day with N95 medical mask producers. Not Actually, not just the producers, the producers and the sellers. And um, what they learned is infuriating. So they say the following, millions of N95 masks have been available throughout the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. during the pandemic, according to brokers trying to sell them. Millions of them, guys. The high price point per mask driven by extreme demand has contributed to an overwhelmed reaction among potential buyers, especially in the U.S. Scrutiny surrounding these deals is high because of ongoing scams and claims of price gouging, both of which are triggering emotionally charged reactions and fear of making deals. Millions of masks are being purchased by foreign buyers and are leaving the country according to the brokers, while the domestic need remains alarmingly high. Okay, so that's bad enough, but look at this. By the end of the day, roughly 280 million masks from warehouses around the U.S. had been purchased by foreign buyers and were earmarked to leave the country, according to the broker. And that was in one day. To his knowledge, none of the masks had been purchased by buyers in the U.S. Oh, boy. Oh, God. All right, so listen, this is, um, this is somewhat personal to me because I have people on the front line. I know people on the front line. And um, they say, it. hey, we have a shortage. We have a shortage of all what they call the PPE, um, the various kinds of masks, shortage of all that stuff. You know, I've told you guys that on the front line in China, they're wearing hazmat suits. Here, we're, our front line people are not wearing hazmat suits. So maybe that's one of the reasons why many of them are getting sick that this thing is actually a lot more contagious than everybody originally thought. It's at least twice as contagious as the flu. So something's going on there. But frontline people in China are wearing hazmat suits, and they're not wearing them here. Maybe we should have hazmat suits, but nobody's wearing them here. So it's like there's a massive shortage of everything that we need here. Ventilators is another one that's super important that we have a shortage of. So during a crisis, the government has the ability, they have the legal authority to, like the Defense Production Act that we talk about all the time now. Trump said, oh, I will now mandate by law that certain businesses have to make the ventilators, for example, other protective gear. And that's good. He should do that. Now, he said, I'm going to use the act. And then he sat around for a week or two as New York was getting obliterated, and then finally he said, all right, fine, GM, you know, this plant makes ventilators, for example. So, but here we have a situation when it comes to the N95 masks. We have the number that we need, if not more, but again, I'll repeat it, roughly 280 million masks from warehouses around the U.S. had been purchased by foreign buyers and were earmarked to leave the country. Why, 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 why was it not the case from early March? Now we're in early April. Why didn't they do it in early March where the government says, eh, 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 they step in, they go, no, we'll pay you a fair market price but per mask, but we're going to seize all those masks and we're going to distribute them to the front line here. Now you could say, well, well, if it's front line, then you don't even need as many masks as they have. You don't need 280 million if you're just talking about the frontline workers here in the us whatever I'm not an expert I don't know the exact number that you need for the front line but I do know the government should have done everything in their power to make sure that the front line in the u.s gets these masks and they didn't they're dragging their feet they don't know what they're doing. Some of the people who were working for these companies that were creating and, and you know selling these masks they were saying well it's, t- it's tough because we even when we talk to the government, and they're not talking to them as much as they should, it was a relatively recent thing, there's like four or five different middlemen that jump in that are working with the government, and then you start thinking it's a scam, and you don't know what the deal is, you don't know if you trust them. This is insane, man. During a pandemic, during a crisis, we have hundreds of millions of these things laying around, and we can't get them to the front line where they're desperately needed. That's, that's unconscionable. That's absurd. That's absurd. I absolutely would have, um, early on in the crisis, immediately got into contact with these companies and said, very simply, we will pay you a fair market price, but we're basically forcing you to give us you know, the number that we need. And we'd be fine if we did that. We'd be in a hell of a lot better position than we are right now. Add this on top of the infuriating story about ventilators that I told you guys. How, in 2009, the U.S. government contracted with a smaller um, medical device company in California, and they said we're going to make a, a smaller, cheaper, easier to use ventilator. And they created the prototypes, showed the government. The government liked them. They ordered, you know, a large amount of them. It was like 70 to 100,000, something in that range. And then a bigger medical device company called Covidian bought up the smaller company and then canceled the federal contract. And the government was caught, you know, and they approved it too, but now we're in a position where we didn't have the stockpile that we needed. Even if they created that stockpile, it wasn't enough, but we have 70,000 to 100,000 more ventilators. So we'd be in a much better position than we are right now. We only have 160,000 ventilators in the entire country, and for this crisis, it's estimated we need about 960,000. So, but we would have had 70 to 100,000 more if we didn't have basically monopoly power and corruption and a bought government screwing us. So, you know, you would think that something like pandemic preparedness, especially since experts said we're definitely going to have one at some point, you think that would have been a higher priority, but it's not. And now as a result of it, we have shortages of certain things, and then other things, there's not a shortage, but at a time when our front line is getting hammered, 280 million masks our earmarked to be sent out. And then there was the other story of we sent a bunch of personal protective equipment to Thailand. As people on the front lines are like, "Uh, uh, we need that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I'll tell you what, you've never seen a stronger argument for an intelligent, coordinated, central authority than a pandemic. Never seen it this strong of an argument before. Because what you absolutely need in a crisis like this is efficient, competent leaders who are coordinating. And also you need a national health system. Let's be serious. You can't have this, you know, bifurcated, fractured, um, ragtag amalgamation of a bunch of different systems under the same umbrella of like American healthcare. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. And this is why we're one of the worst in the world now in terms of the number of cases. I would say the worst, but some of the other countries are fudging their numbers. But I also think that we're probably fudging our numbers too. I'm sure there's been deaths that are attributed that really are COVID that they're just marking down as like, you know, lung issue or heart attack or whatever. So what a mess, what a mess, what a mess, what a mess. 280 million masks, 280 million. They were sitting in a warehouse and now they're ordered from overseas as our front line has a shortage of virtually everything. Jesus, man, it's unbelievable. Now, Trump was saying he just stockpiled um, hydrochloroquine, the, uh, one of the drugs that's, that potentially fights this. He said he has 29 million doses that he stockpiled. And some people on the left are like, well, that's, it's an unproven treatment, so why are you going all in on this treatment? That's a fair point, but at the same time, I think it's a little overstated because now it's, the issue is so politicized with that medicine that now like the entire left is, seems to argue like that it's useless and the entire right is convinced it's like a miracle cure. The reality is actually somewhere in the middle. Um, I know that New York City on the front lines, they're using that drug, and they were using it before Trump said anything about it. So there are many medical professionals who say, no, actually this is you know a decent treatment. But anyway, the point I was going to make is, not only would I stockpile that, I would stockpile all of the potential treatments which could work. Because there's actually quite a few drugs that they're studying right now that have some degree of promise. I mean, obviously it varies depending on the drug and the nature of the drug, and but I would try to stockpile every single one of those um, kinds of drugs. And the the sense I get is we're only concerned about stockpiling this one because there might be a cozy relationship between whoever makes it and the government. That's what I'm concerned about because I know that just to give one example, Avigan is uh, another, a treatment that also shows um, some promise also known as uh, Favapiravir, which we've spoken about on the show, but it's made by a Japanese company. So I'm, I fear that the reason why we're not going all in on that treatment and the reason why Trump doesn't talk about that treatment a lot is because it's, you know, it's a Japanese company and, um, perhaps they didn't pay the government the US government their bribes if they did maybe they would be hawked as a potential cure but i just i'm so distraught as to the thousand and one ways in which we we didn't prepare for this and the results are devastating all right i got another religious one for you because why the hell not
0: I got another religious story, where they're being bitches, bitch.
1: Fear not, nobody needs to worry about COVID-19 anymore, because Christian fundamentalist Kenneth Copeland found a way to fight it. This is what happens when you have nothing to contribute to the national conversation in a crisis. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I couldn't script something funnier than that. Blow the virus. He was like, <sighs> by the way, well done, because if, if any one of you had the virus, you certainly just spread it all over the place because you're like, <sighs> little droplets will definitely come out with a move, move like that, but. Blow the virus. <laughs> oh, blow the virus. Okay. So my question for everybody is, does this guy think it will actually work, or is he a charlatan? Because I do think there's a real question there. And you guys know that I default. my default setting is I don't assume malintent unless there's evidence of it. In other words, my assumption here is that, oh, no, he's actually, like, a crazy person, and he thinks that since he's a televangelist and he's, like, connected with God, that this is an attempt to fight the virus that has some chance of working. But then other people will call me a sucker and say, I don't care what Occam's razor is in this situation. The guy's just a fraud. And, by the way, Kenneth Copeland, this is the guy who he, he went viral for... During one of his religious shows, he was telling his audience that, come on, man, you guys got to help me crowdfund a private jet. And you got to help me do that because I can't be in a tube with demons. That's what he said, a tube with demons. You know how expressive he is with his face. That was the best part of that by far. It was like the subtle, like the facial, facial expressions, like, I got the virus now. But that's who this guy is. He tried to crowdfund from his probably working-class viewers enough money to buy a private jet because he couldn't be around the public because the public is evil. I mean, that is, like, literally the opposite of what Jesus would say. (laughs) And this guy claims to represent Jesus. Would Jesus want a private jet? Would Jesus call, you know, fellow human beings demons? No, the guy who wants to help everybody. Uh, but anyway, that's who this guy is, so probably there's a decent chance of, um, you know, him just he's just a charlatan, and he's just, I don't know, trying to find some angle and some way to stay relevant during COVID-19 and to get followers to uh, think he's onto something. I don't know. <laughs> but here's the crazy thing, man. There are people out there who are silly enough to think that, this is real. I know that that sounds crazy, but we just we just played a story, or played a video, covered the story of a woman who was responding to a reporter by saying, "Oh, don't worry, I'm not going to get the virus because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus," and she was totally convinced that this is a thing. That like, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. I pray to the correct sky wizard. So the Sky Wizard is going to protect me. Don't worry about it. I'm good. If, if the Sky Wizard is real and the Sky Wizard created everything, why did he allow the virus to spread in the first place? Not only is the virus spreading, it's a, infected plenty of Christians. So isn't that a sign to you that perhaps the Sky Wizard uh, is not real because the virus came to existence in the first place, but also because your fellow Christian brothers and sisters are getting sick too. You don't think that, you know, is maybe a strike against the religion a little bit? No? You never, you can never understand. It's like when, when there's a natural disaster and somebody survives, and, you know, these fundamentalists are like, oh, thank God, Jesus was protecting them. Okay, but... How many thousands of people died? How many people died? Like Hurricane Katrina, for example. So somebody happened to survive. What about all the people who died? God just didn't love them enough, or they didn't love God enough, or they're unworthy, but this other person is worthy? No. Come on, man. It's just... It's absurd. It's absurd. But there are people out there. This reminds me of Pat Robertson at the end of every show. Actually, I don't know if it's every show, to be fair, but he does it quite a bit. He'll do this, uh, you know, prayer thing where... He and his co-hosts will, like, hold their arm up to the TV screen, and Kenneth Copeland does this a lot, too, on his show, where he talks about how there's somebody out there. Let me do my Pat Robertson,
0: There's somebody out there who's got a pain that they're dealing with in their kidney, and we're going to make sure that they're healed.
1: We're going to heal them in three, two, one. And they do these, like, fake cures. Now, you might think, well, that's just harmless. They're just being silly, but it's harmless. Well, I mean, there is a tiny percentage of people who might say, hey, I can't afford the doctor, so I, might not, I should just not go to the doctor because Pat's trying to heal me. You know, this guy's looking out for me. There are some people who actually are that ridiculous where, and Pat said it you know, he said it with a variety of different illnesses and uh, types of pain, and and we're going to heal you. And if that disincentivizes one person from actually taking action, that's not good, man. That's really not cool. So anyway, this is, isn't it crazy? Like, I've often thought about this. We have pharmaceutical companies, and I'm not defending them by any stretch of the imagination, but they are legally required whenever they're Selling a drug... First of all, they shouldn't have advertisements for drugs. That's ridiculous. But... Um... They're legally required... To say... Here are all the side effects. Like you've seen the pharma commercials... And then they list all the side effects. Side so effects include... Bah, 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 and they'll go through it. And then, meanwhile... This guy can go out there... And... He could just pretend like he's... Curing COVID-19. <laughs> by doing this ridiculous... Or like, what's his face? Um... Jim Baker, who was doing a segment where he's got this super cheaply made silver potion serum thing, and he talks about how this kills every known pathogen. (laughs) Alex Jones saying his toothpaste cures COVID-19 or coronavirus. The fact that, and listen, I'm I'm the biggest believer in free speech you'll ever find, but isn't that something that there are rules and regulations around... The pharmaceutical companies selling their their drugs, but there's virtually no regulation around supplements, and there's no regulation around these religious lunatics who are out there, like, yeah, I I cured it. How? I went like this. I went like this, and I was very animated and made some faces. So I'm fighting back against uh, the coronavirus. Imagine this is your life. This is what you do. Man, I, how, how does he not lay down at night, put his head on his pillow and say, I am a total froth? How does he not do that? Come on, man. You, maybe he does. Maybe he does, which gets back to the original question. Is he a crazy person or is he a total charlatan? And I, I present that question to you, not just in the context of this guy, but for all of these characters, whether it's Pat Robertson, Jim Baker, you know, John Hagee, who I think has passed away a while ago, um, Ted Haggard, remember him? I might be dating myself here. Many of you guys probably haven't heard of Ted Haggard. He was a big-time anti-gay pastor who was caught with uh, a gay prostitute and meth. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, and even the right-wing commentators, you know, you fill in the blank with whichever one ones. I always have this debate: Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, all of them, Rush Limbaugh. Which ones believe it and which ones don't believe it? And they're just like playing a role and they're charlatans. All right, now President Trump. President Trump is going at Joseph Biden. Trump is already starting to take shots at Joe Biden. And it's not going to surprise you to see he's going right for the jugular.
2: He 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 didn't write anything. Look, here's people, here's professionals from the Democrats Let me just read what
0: he said. He said Donald Trump is not responsible for the coronavirus, but he is responsible for failing to prepare our nation to respond
2: to it. How do you respond to that? Uh, He didn't write that. That was done by a Democrat operative. He doesn't write. He doesn't, he's probably not even watching right now. Uh, and if he is, he doesn't understand what he's watching. Oh. Uh-huh. just so you understand, uh-huh. it was very nice what they wrote out. I don't know, you know, they released it at a strange time, you know, sort of a strange time to release something like that. But he admitted I was right. And if you read the Federalist story, which most of you won't, because you don't want to, but you'd learn something. Because if you go, go through a chart, Times, I was early, Dr. Fauci, I think, I don't think he's changed his mind, but he said it was a very important step when we stopped China from coming in from the specific area that was heavily infected. We have a whole different thing right now. So I don't really know what Joe Biden said. I don't really care. And, again, I see everyone a while well, I'll say something, I'll make a speech, and then it'll be critiqued, and I'll get this beautiful, brilliant critique. Joe Biden didn't write that. Joe Biden didn't write that. He wished he did, but he didn't.
1: Listen, he is going to exploit every single weakness, and I find it hilarious that there are neoliberal Democrats who go after Bernie and say, oh, Bernie was too harsh, and he's hurting Biden's chances. They said the same thing against Bernie in 2016 when Hillary lost. A lot of people blame Bernie for that loss, which is ridiculous, because He was famous for backing off of many criticisms. Nobody wants to uh, talk about your damn emails or whatever the hell he said. You know, he was super specific only talking about policy. And you could say it's a weakness because he doesn't go that step further that you need to go in order to really have that killer instinct. But it's hilarious. They're saying, you know, Bernie's too hard on Biden. Bernie never mentioned biden's you know severe cognitive decline never mentioned it not once and you think trump is gonna hold back i mean it's hilarious he biden faces no real severe criticisms bernie even apologized when his surrogate called biden corrupt so what's trump gonna do he's gonna dive into all of the weaknesses of course he's going to call him corrupt. He's going to talk about Hunter and specific things happening with Hunter and the deals and exactly how Biden's family got rich off of Biden uh, being in his position as VP and before that senator. And you could say Trump will be a hypocrite because he's got all those things on his own record too. That never stopped him before. You don't think Trump at some point is going to bring up the sexual assault allegation against Biden? I guarantee you he is. Now again, you might say, yeah, but Trump's got a million Claims of sexual assault against him that's true but hypocrisy never stopped this guy he'll go right for the jugular and he will find a way to hammer it home and it definitely will hurt Joe Biden now understand something guys I am agnostic on who would win a race between Biden and Trump I am particularly because we have a pandemic right now and we have a market crash right now if we didn't have a pandemic and we didn't have a market crash there's an 80% chance in my opinion that Trump would beat Biden Right now, the race is 50-50 in my mind, Trump or Biden. Um, but having said that, you are out of your mind if you think that this guy is you know, going to hold back at all and is not going to eviscerate Biden in a variety of different ways. He's definitely going to do that. And by the way, if Bernie had been more aggressive, there's a much better chance Bernie could have won that way. But if he had been even more aggressive, guys, that doesn't necessarily hurt in the general election. See, that's the argument is, and they said this in 2016 too, like the Republicans were vicious against each other in 2016 and then Trump still wound up winning. So really in a way the primary can be viewed as like, it's almost like practicing, exercising, getting prepared for a marathon by really pushing the limits and testing yourself. Biden wasn't pushed and tested at all. And then now he's gonna have the marathon of the general election. And he's up against a guy who's a master at exploiting weaknesses. I mean, look at how he phrased that, man. Uh, he's not watching this. And if he is watching this, he doesn't understand what he's watching. Oh, that is just, that is brutal. And he's just getting warmed up. He's just getting started. But yeah, the argument he's going with is, are you, like, do you even know where you are? Or are you, do you understand what's happening? Do you get the position that you're in? Biden didn't write that. He had his people write it. Biden doesn't even write Oh, he said it in one of his rallies previously. He's like, Biden, if Biden gets elected, he's not even going to be president. They're going to put him in a home somewhere. They're going to put him in a rocking chair and put him in the corner.
3: Oh,
1: come on, man. Devastating, devastating. And he's just getting started. He really is. Um, I think that what we're looking at for 2020 is basically the same Trump versus Hillary scenario that we faced in 2016, except now you have that extra layer on top of Biden is in severe cognitive decline. So Trump will be vicious. And what this shows me is he still has the ability to um, read a room better than most politicians, Trump does. He knows how to pivot even to the left of Biden on many issues. There was a story that just came out and again, just so everybody knows, it's only in messaging. It's never in actual policy, just so you know. But there's a story that broke the other day. Trump and his administration are considering, um, you know, using Medicare, Medicare or Medicaid to pay for the treatments for coronavirus for people. Now, again, hold your horses because they, you know, you had Mnuchin say, oh, it's a, I'm for UBI after when the crash first happened and then the next day, Pelosi said means testing, and he was like, okay, sure, means testing, and then they kept agreeing to, Mnuchin was totally fine with watering it down more and more and more. It became a one-time payment, not a recurring payment. It became only for people who filed with the IRS in 2018 and 2019 and gave them the direct deposit information, it's going to take forever for the money to get out there. So this is what they do all the time. They stake a position that sounds decent, and then slowly but surely, they move away from it and away from it, away from it more and more, and uh, to the point where the policy is unrecognizable and it's really stupid. So my point is don't fall for the head fake because they don't actually mean it. But when it comes to the rhetoric, Trump is going to go to the left of Biden on many issues. It's like that Super Bowl commercial that Trump released where he's bragging about freeing Alice Johnson, the you know, sweet grandma-like lady who um, was in prison for a drug offense for life so he bragged about criminal justice reform. He bragged about that. He's going to, again, hit Biden in the same way he hit, Trump, uh, he hit uh, Hillary on NAFTA and on free trade and on TPP. So I think you're, and Biden's going around reminding everybody, no, I'm not for Medicare for all. He says it like every day. You want to talk about putting a middle finger up to your base. And just so you understand, guys, listen, without that, Coup that happened right before Super Tuesday. It was like it was like a coup. What happened? Somehow, in a political masterstroke at the last minute, you had Obama make the phone call to Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar, and they dropped out and endorsed Biden. Which, without that, Biden would not have won. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Without that move, Biden would not have won. Bernie would have won. He would have gotten at least a plurality. So they did this political masterstroke at the last minute basically prop Biden up and carry him across the finish line, okay? And then now you would think that they'd be smart enough to know, oh my God, you're going to have a 30% block of the party, the Bernie people, who are just totally distraught and are like, you know what, screw you guys, and are going to check out of the system or vote third party or not vote at all or really pissed off and just want nothing to do with this. And because we've been screwed. The guy who we trust who we know will fight for us, who believes in the vision that we believe in, they screwed him at the last minute. So you would think that they'd be smart enough to know, okay, all of our effort, all of our attention from now on is going to be is going to be directed towards mending that fence and getting them on board with us. Instead, they're doing the opposite. Biden's doing the opposite. Biden's still putting his middle finger up to the people that he just screwed over. He's going in the wrong direction, and then Trump, you know, pops up out of nowhere here and is using the strongest arguments against Biden and will pivot to his left on many issues. I'm telling you, man, we're already at the point where iceberg dead ahead. We're already there. It's already feeling like that. And if you don't see that this is a little preview of what's to come, oh, I don't know what to tell you. Because Trump will be relentless, Trump will be vicious, Trump will go right for Biden's jugular, and Biden is not coherent when he talks. Imagine Biden trying to respond to a direct attack from Trump, whatever it's on, whether it's trade, the Iraq war, whatever it's on, his cognitive ability. I see Biden just like rambling for five minutes, making no sense. And Trump just being like, are you all right? Do you need to sit down? You're not doing too well. It's going to be gross, man. It's going to be gross. It's going to be bad. Don't say we didn't warn you. I warned you multiple times. All right, let me take a final quick break, and then when we come back, um, we have a few important things to get to. I want to talk about the Joe Rogan thing, and then we're going to talk about purity tests. So stay right there. We'll be right back. back bitch
2: Welcome back, Cotter.
1: All right, these last stories are two of the two of the ones I was most looking forward to actually for the day. One of them is a story, the other one is just me rambling. But anyway, let me set this up. <clears throat> Joe Rogan was trending on Twitter this weekend. Joe Rogan, on why he's set to vote for Donald Trump, Democrats have made us all morons by running Joe Biden. Now, um, that headline's a little misleading. First of all, he said he would rather have Trump in office than Biden. He didn't say he's actually going to go vote for Donald Trump, so... You could say that's a distinction without a difference, but I actually do think that there's, there's a little bit of a difference there. If you're, not, if you're saying, hey, man, I'd rather have this person than this person, that's different than saying I'm actively going to go and vote for this person. So that's one point. But the other point is Joe talks about how, and, and he's made this clear many times now, Biden is in cognitive decline, and Joe thinks it is totally unacceptable and unforgivable that somebody in cognitive decline is being pushed on us and might be the president of the United States. And that's, as far as I can tell, the only thing that Joe is considering. And he's thinking about. It. He thinks that that overrides all of the policy concerns because you know Joe uh, believes climate change is a huge issue, and Biden would likely get us back in the Paris Climate Agreement, and um, Trump wouldn't, of course. And I'm sure that if if the court situation was explained to Joe Rogan that he would probably also concede that he would like any Supreme Court justice picked by Biden over Trump. But to him, that's all largely irrelevant to the bigger point, which is I can't have somebody in power who has dementia. I think Rogan would probably go as far as to say that Biden has dementia and it's not just Cognitive decline is like the PC way of saying it, but it's also, I think, technically more correct because he hasn't been diagnosed with dementia. You haven't had a medical expert say that. So just to be on the safe side, i say cognitive decline. But I think that, uh, you know, Rogan would say flat out dementia. So now here's the thing, man. In response to this, people melted down. And it was the same way that Joe has, like, these side comments that he says mid-conversation during the podcast. And people look at those comments, isolate them, and then melt down over it. The same thing happened here with Rogan. And look at what the response was. This is just one example, but I could give you a thousand more because he was trending on Twitter all because people were saying stuff like this. Remember how the Bernie campaign was flaunting, the Joe Rogan endorsement? Well, turns out that Joe Rogan would rather trump over Biden. Considering how close the Bernie campaign was to Rogan, seems important for Bernie, or at least his campaign, to issue a statement. So think about that. They want Bernie to apologize because Biden is so weak that he can't win swing voters. Ultimately, that's what we're talking about here. Joe Rogan, as Michael Brooks says, is, is very indicative of an actual center of the country. Like, he's a good example of how many people think about politics, that he has thoughts about it and he'll express them, but I think he would fancy himself relatively apolitical and not too involved in that world. And so he's very indicative of a swing voter or an independent who has checked out to some extent, but participates, you know, in our system. And this actually proves the case that Bernie was making all along, and the case of Bernie supporters like myself, that Bernie is, has a unique strength. His strength is among young people, first and foremost but also among independents and swing voters and even former Trump supporters in the Rust Belt who know Bernie's you know, commitment on trade and, and fighting all the outsourcing deals and support him for that reason. So he's, Bernie is uniquely positioned to do well in a general election. And this is exactly that case laid out in no uncertain terms. You have a very prominent... You know, more independent type political character and swing voter basically saying, like, I just can't support Biden. And I would rather have Trump stay in office for another four years than have the guy with cognitive decline. So funny enough, everybody's melting down, but they're just proving the point of Bernie that he made all along, that if you really wanted to win. Then, you know, you need somebody who can get the Joe Rogan kind of voters, because if you don't win the Joe Rogan kind of voters, how are you gonna win the election? So I think that's you know <clears throat> I think that's um I think that I think it's interesting. Now, I I am not of the Joe Rogan belief, me personally. Um I've told you guys this before, but I'll just sit out. I don't know what Joe will actually do, but I wouldn't go as far as to say, you know, I would prefer Trump over Biden. I do think that goes too far, and I do think that kind of overlooks a lot of the very, very real damage that Trump has done in his time in office and just how bad he's been. Um, so I, I wouldn't agree with Joe Rogan, but what I will say is the Democrats have now put us in a position where we have no real good response to Joe, because the thing that he's concerned about the most is true. That thing he's concerned about the most is biden's cognitive ability i guess you could say well trump also has some sort of cognitive decline there might be some degree of truth to that but i don't think it's as severe as biden's so you've now put people in a position where i don't think there's a convincing response to joe rogan the best you could do the best you could say is what about the supreme court and what about climate change in the paris climate agreement that's really the best i got that i could say to him and I guess you could list off Trump's, you know, all of his horrendous policies, like, for example, the 2017 Republican tax cut, which gave 83% of the benefits to the top 1%, the deregulation of the marketplace, the assassination of the Iranian commander, which sparked an international crisis, the, the increasing of drone strikes by 432%, um, you know, the list goes on and on of all the things that Trump has done, the firing of the pandemic experts, and then we had a frickin' pandemic. Like, I could list off a million and one things that Trump did that are bad, but, you know, I think the most I could effectively convince somebody is to, if they were leaning in Trump's direction, I could convince them to maybe sit out. But I don't have a good, positive, proactive case to make for Biden, particularly because you know, he puts his middle finger up to me in every issue I care about deeply. Zero confidence he'll, I know he won't do Medicare for all, but even on other issues where there would be a ray of hope, I have zero confidence in him. Like, you know, fighting for a living wage. I don't think you're going to do anything on a living wage front or free college or a Green New Deal or legalizing marijuana. Is the author of the crime bill. He wanted to escalate the war on drugs, and he did for most of his career. So my point is, I have no positive case for Biden other than saying, hey, the courts are really important and Paris Climate Agreement is really important. That's the most proactive case I can make for Biden. Everything else I say is just anti-Trump, which, again, those things are real as a heart attack. But I'm only convinced in my ability to convince people to not vote for Trump, not, hey, don't vote for Trump and also vote for Biden. So it's – this is the position they put us in, and you know, by and large, when you look at the numbers, it's mostly the older, um, the older Boomer liberals who are drunk on MSNBC and CNN. Those are the people who really turned out in this election and and gave Biden the advantage. So it'll be interesting to see how the general election unfolds. Right now, I'm 50/50 as to what will happen because we have a pandemic and because we have a market pra- crash. So all bets are off, really. Um, but this is how a lot of voters feel. What, Joe, Biden, what um, Joe Rogan just said there about Joe Biden, this is how a lot of voters feel. They either want to check out of the system, which is understandable, or they want to vote for Trump, or they just say something like, "He's well, yeah, I would prefer Trump to Biden because Biden's brain doesn't work at all. Somehow we've fallen further from 2016. 2016 was terrible because it was, you know, a neoliberal corporatist representative of the status quo in the establishment versus a a totally Looney Tunes, narcissist, reality star buffoon. Like, those were the options in 2016. Now we have that same reality star buffoon up against somebody that is very similar politics to Hillary Clinton, except he also has severe cognitive decline really doesn't get any worse than this. And I hate to tell the Biden supporters, but you are not going to get anywhere with shaming. Shaming Bernie to apologize because his opponent is uniquely weak, that's not going to work. And shaming people like Rogan is not going to work either. He'll just tell you to piss off. So the voter outreach of the Biden people is beyond abysmal. And you're going to need a good voter outreach and good strong arguments to convince people who are either those independents and swing voters or the left, because the left, people like me, are like, I can't do it, man. I feel physically ill when I think about participating in this clown show of an election. So this is where we are. None of the lessons of 2016 were learned. And you see the Biden people doing exactly the same thing that the Hillary people did in 2016. Let me shame you. Let me insult you. Uh, Let me call you stupid. Let me call you a bad person. Let me, you know, throw every negative thing I got at you and then turn around and whine when you don't support my candidate. Well, maybe you should have taken people's concerns more seriously, and maybe you should have made better arguments and tried convincing and outreach as opposed to your strategy, which is decidedly the opposite. But here we go. So now the most popular... um, podcast host in the country who does have a tremendous amount of power and sway um he is openly saying he does not want joe biden like i said next time i go on rogan's uh, podcast maybe i'll do my best to try to convince him that he should in no way shape or form support trump because i definitely think i can make that argument and i can convince him but um I certainly don't think I have it in me to convince him to support Biden proactively because that I honestly think that's ridiculous as well. Now, let's, let's finish with a little chat about purity tests. Let's talk a little bit about purity tests. So there are two different kinds of purity tests. One of them I am completely against, and I have no test in this version of purity test. In fact, I will argue against, one of these kinds of purity tests. The other kind of purity test I have, and I have standards, and you should too. So what do I mean? Well, the first kind of purity test is what I would call purity of personal story or purity on ancillary issues. So what I mean by that is, listen, we all have pasts. Nobody was born perfect. Nobody was born with the politics of Noam Chomsky. Nobody, like just kind of had the correct and acceptable and moral and ethical positions on everything from when they were young. And this is part of human growth and human development, is you, you know, you live, you learn, you grow. It's that simple. So, if you've ever made distasteful jokes, or you've said terrible things in the past, or you've believed terrible things in the past, you've, you've had questionable positions. Honestly, I don't hold that against you or anybody at all. I don't care if you were, you know, a hardcore Trump supporter or George W. Bush supporter or a hardcore Republican or whatever last year. I don't care if you dabbled in insane and dangerous beliefs in the past, whether it be alt-right stuff or whatever, fill in the blank. If we can sufficiently convince you that's incorrect and you have a change of heart and you have you know undergo some sort of an enlightenment or evolution why wouldn't you want to welcome those people with open arms i mean i that's how you win you win by convincing people and converting people and what we have today is a movement on the left that in many ways embodies the exact opposite of that that it you know if you are happy to get support from or build bridges with people who either in the past have said questionable things or done questionable things, or people who you agree with a lot on some things but not on other things. you got some people who are like, no, burn it all down. Burn every bridge that's not with people who agree with you 100% up front and haven't always agreed with you. And honestly, that is a recipe for disaster, and that's a recipe for losing So that's one kind of purity test. And that's the kind of purity test that I'm so sick of. And I want to obliterate and eliminate. And I want nobody on the left to be that kind of a, you know, stick up your ass kind of person. And unfortunately, again, it's super common. We see it all the time. You know, people will get crap just for associating with somebody who may have some questionable beliefs. You know what I mean? It's like when... It's like when um, Glenn Greenwald or some other left-winger goes on Tucker Carlson's show, and then all of a sudden it's like Glenn Greenwald needs to be, you know, he's now out of the Cool Kids Club. We don't consider him on the left anymore, and we think he's like, you know, a closet right-winger or something, and he overlooks racism and bigotry because Tucker's bigoted, so therefore Glenn is bigoted, and it's just like – there are some people on the left who don't even realize it, but they're very comfortable and happy being an outsider subculture that will never take the reins of power. Because to them, it's more about their feelings and, you know, being an edgy outsider and actually trying to get political power and make positive change for the people. So we can't be comfortable being an insufferable subgroup. We have to be serious about power and, and taking the reins of control and improving the country, and implementing our policies. And you cannot do that by having that approach, by having the weird personal story purity tests and you know the guilt-by-association nonsense. Never do guilt-by-association. It's always been dumb. They used to do it. Republican commentators and Fox News used to do that all the time. This was back early on, before we knew Obama was uh, neoliberal, but they used to go after Obama because you you sat, you knew the person and sat there. Who cares? Who cares? I mean, this, the amount of energy that goes into making these gotcha arguments when there's nothing substantive there is just, like, soul-crushing. So don't be like that. Don't be like that. You know, there were stories that a bunch of people were pissed at Bernie because Bernie accepted the endorsement of Joe Rogan. It's the most popular podcast host in America. God damn it, take yes for an answer. Take yes for an answer. What the hell? Yeah, but he said things that are bad and believes some things that are bad, and he makes jokes that are bad. Oh, come on. What are you, you, six? Grow up, man. It's so stupid. So on that kind of purity test, the purity of personal story, gone. Doesn't exist. Get rid of it. Hate it. You should never buy into that nonsense. Never buy into the, you know, ultra social justice warrior-y stuff that goes way too far. Um... But then there's another kind of purity test, and this kind of purity test is purity of core principles or purity of core policies. On this one, oh, I have a purity test, and I think you should too, and you need to demand it of your politicians. So here's what I mean by that. There's some things I'm not going to bend on, some policies I'm not going to bend on, but they're all substantive. It's all substantive. So you guys know, for me, I'm a a deep believer in Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars. And certainly in this modern era where we see what's happening with this pandemic, I'm now totally on board with UBI. I think we need Social Security for all 100 percent. Now, am I saying that these are the things I believe in and any politician I support needs to believe in every one of these things that I'm pushing for? No, because, you know, you have to be somewhat realistic and interface and interact with the world as it exists, not as you want it to be. So I can't say, here are my demands and all of these things you must believe in. No. But can I make the case that you have to not only believe in, but also convince me that you'll fight for and push for at least one or two of my core policies that coincide with my principles? Yes. On that, you. I'm sorry. I'm done in this sense. You will never see me bend my values and bend my beliefs to go along to get along and play for the team and you know fall in line because, hey, lesser evil. Nope. I'm done with that and you should be too because where does that game get us? Nowhere. It gets us with the economic spectrum, or excuse me, political spectrum going further and further to the right, and the so-called lefties being dragged further and further to the right. And you compromise away all your values until you're at the point where it's like, hey, do you support the fascist or the ultra-fascist? I don't support either one. I'm against fascism. Ah! Ridiculous. Purity test. (laughs) It's like, wait, did you guys not see how ridiculous this is? You could set up a 1,000 scenarios where people will understand how ridiculous it is. You know, hey, would you rather have David Duke or Richard Spencer be president? Neither. Well, here's why David Duke is slightly less terrible compared to Richard Spencer. So, got to pick that one. No, I don't. I don't at all. And you could piss off if you're insisting I do have to pick one. I'm not going to. So... I'm done with that, but what my position is is on the purity test of core policies. You have to not only nominally and on paper agree with me on at least one or two of those things, but I have to be convinced that you actually will fight for one or two of those things. So not just you're placating me and, yeah, I'm for that. Like, that's not enough. I need to know that or just be convinced that, For one or two of my deeply held policy beliefs, you'll fight for it. And if that is the case, then you will see me say, you know, I'll support this person, I'll vote for this person, I'll argue for this person. But I'm not going to do it if I'm not convinced that at least on one or two of my main issues that they're going to fight for it. And it doesn't matter how much you try to shame me, how much you try to insult me, how much you try to, you know... Because people are vicious when you, when you take this approach. It's crazy. When you have standards that you want to apply, people are vicious. They're vicious. They're like, ah, how dare you not support you know, Biden, for one instance? And it's like, well, because it's not on me. It's on him. I'm telling you exactly what would need to be done for me to support him, and he's not going to do it. And even for Biden, I made, the, I made another exception, which I probably shouldn't do, but I did which is, listen, if he were to pick Nina Turner or Bernie Sanders as VP, I'll vote for him. And that's even with me saying I still don't think he would push for any of those policies that I love, but I'm making an exception because if Bernie or Nina's in the room, I know that they will push him to be as good as he could possibly be and might have some impact and might push him left to some extent. So I'm taking a risk there, but it's a risk worth taking, in my opinion, because I know Biden's not going to push for any of the policies I believe in, so what's the next best thing? Well, have your VP be somebody who I know believes in all of those policies. But, like, point is, it's not on me, man. It's on them. Because my test is as reasonable as I could make it. You know, I could be an asshole, and I could say, no, my policies are Medicare for All, free college, living wage, end the wars, Green New Deal, legalize uh, marijuana, UBI, And you have to be for all of those things and convince me that you will win and fight for all of those things. If I wanted to be a prick, if I wanted to be unreasonable, I could say that, but I'm not unreasonable because I understand that, you know, we have to, we have to function in the system that exists. So I've gone all the way to the position of, oh, no, I have a purity test, but I'm lenient, and perhaps I'm more lenient than even some people in this audience, but I will support somebody, vote for somebody, argue for somebody. If I'm convinced, they will not only say they believe in it, but fight for at least one or two of the policies that I deeply believe in. I think that I have a very reasonable, if anything, slightly lax purity test, but I do have a purity test, because you know what that means? I have standards, and somehow we've gotten to the position where it's frowned upon. When you say you have standards that you want to hold your politicians to all the anger directed at me should be directed to the politicians to listen to my very reasonable purity test and to act on it, because that will convince a hell of a lot more people. I guarantee you if Biden were to suddenly take one or two of the things I care about and actually keep talking about it and say, I'm going to fight for this, he would definitely convince way more people that wouldn't vote for him to vote for him. So don't all the anger, don't direct it at me, because it's not on me. They're supposed to represent me. If, if the politician doesn't represent me, that's on them. That's their fault. That's their problem. So, again, there are two kinds of purity tests. One of them, I don't believe in at all, and I have no test when it comes to purity of personal story, purity of your past, purity on those ancillary issues. I'm as leaning as it gets on that. The other kind of purity test, purity of core policies, purity of principles, oh, I have a test there. And maybe my test is a, little, is a little too strict for many of you who watch the show, or maybe my test is a little too lenient for some of you who watch the show. But I'm telling you what my test is. I'm telling you up front what it is. Hey, here are the issues I care deeply about. If you convince me, you will fight for one or two of those issues, and you really convince me. Then I'll argue for you, then I'll fight for you, you know, then I'll vote for you. But if you're not going to do it, www.pissoff.org, because I'm done playing this game, man. We've played it for far too long. And um, I highly, highly, highly recommend, I mean, I would argue, not only should you guys have a purity test, but it should mirror the basic layout that i'm talking about here not necessarily that you have to like oh on every particular issue i'm going to agree with kyle no maybe you value certain issues more than other issues maybe paid time off is in your top five for example but my point is if you you should have your own set of policies that you care deeply about and you should also i think have you know if a politician convinces me they will fight for one or two of them and they mean it then i'll probably support that politician That's what I think is is fair and reasonable and understandable. And I know some people will say I'm being too lenient, and some people will say I'm being too strict. But I'm giving you my ideas on this up front, and I wanted to lay it out for you in detail. What I mean by there's two kinds of purity tests. One, I hate. The other, I actually like. And now you have that distinction, and whenever we have these conversations about purity tests, I hope you guys all make that distinction. Because sometimes it's all... Lumped in together, and I don't think that makes sense. I don't think that's fair because um, those are two very different things and two very different dynamics. And I think it makes sense to make the distinction. But anyway, there you have it. And I'm sure, even given given these standards, I'm sure there will be so many politicians who will still let me down big time. All right, guys, we're done. I love you, baby. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody keep social distancing.